0: Who are you? What is your identity? In other words, what comes to mind when people ask what matters most to you, your purpose, your worth? You know, there's really few questions that are significant as the question of our identity. And for most of Western history, the question of our identity was inextricably linked to the fact of God and our Creator. He's our Maker. We were made in His image. And we cannot know our identity apart from knowing God. However, during the last few centuries, uh, that view has come under great attack. Many people now think that you can find and forge your own identity apart from God. And as we survey our culture today, there are abundant options of how to wrap your identity around this, that, or the other. Some people would find their identity in their job. This is what matters most to them in their life. Other people would say their identity is focused on their family. You know, I am a husband or a father. That is what matters. That is my identity is centered around those things. Other things that people find their identity is their ethnicity. Some people find their identity in their nationality. Some people find their identity in politics, whether it's liberal, conservative, Marxist. Some people find their identity in the environment, not only just a love for the environment and a a general concern for the environment, but an overwhelming passion to preserve the environment. Some people find their identity in their sexuality. Some people find their identity in their appearance, you know, how they look and constantly focusing on that. Some people find their identity in sports. As we know this a little bit later today, there's kind of a big event going on, right? Right the Super Bowl. And there'll be plenty of fans who are not only just rooting for their team to win, but who will either experience the great highs of elation or just devastation for days on end if their team wins or loses. So we have all these options before us, and many people pursue these options of identity with a lot of zeal and time and money and passion. But what's ironic, that is in the midst of all of this stuff, we live in an age filled with despair, where there is a lot of discouragement and aimlessness and a lack of purpose and worth. The reason is because though many of these aspects of our lives are good, and I for one have pursued them more than I should have in my own life and given them more attention, none of them Allow us to find our true identity because you can't know your identity unless you know your creator, unless you know the one who has redeemed you and his purpose for you. Our passage today gives us such a great passage because it gives us an incredible vision of our triune God and his purpose, his calling for us, all those other things cannot fill the hole in the human heart that God can and the identity he wants to give us. So this is a remarkable vision that we're going to see in our passage before us. And I think if we could only just wrap our hearts and our minds around it, it would just radically change us. It would allow us to be able to go through the trials and tribulations of life much more anchored in this identity and to give us a sense of purpose of what life is about to galvanize our time and our energy and our resources living for the glory of God. I think one of the greatest needs in the American church is to establish our identity firmly in Christ and not chasing all of the other options that are out there in our culture. So let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 1 as we pick up in our series. We just got started last week with the first three verses of Revelation. Just to recap very briefly Uh, we saw that the Apostle John was more than likely the author of the book of Revelation sometime toward the end of the first century. He was writing a book given to him by God to a group of seven churches in Asia Minor. And so this book of Revelation is actually a letter to these seven churches. We also saw that it's more than just a letter. It's Prophecy. John speaks of things that will happen in days to come, pushing all the way to the end of time, even stretching out into the new creation. So it's a letter, it's a prophecy, but it's also apocalyptic. We see uh, unveiled realities of a world around us that John tells us about. There's all kinds of symbolism with numbers and images and so forth. And we saw that the number seven appears all over the place in the book of Revelation because it symbolizes perfection and completion. And the seven churches not only were real churches, but more than likely was a symbol that this is a letter written to all churches. So that's why we soak it up here today in the midst of 2021. This is a letter still for us. And so, Revelation is a prophetic, apocalyptic letter. A lot going on in the book of Revelation. So, today, we're going to continue by looking at the greeting. And the greeting of this letter is no normal greeting, as we probably should not be surprised in the book of Revelation, where it's so unique. It's a Trinitarian greeting. And then we read this praise to Christ that John utters in this beginning part of his letter. There's only five verses that we're going to cover here this morning because it's just so densely packed with truths. And again, truths that I hope will mold us and mold our identity and to have a grand, glorious vision of who God is and what he wants us to live out in our lives. So let us read verses four to five. As we read this Trinitarian greeting, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And so we have this, again, this letter, we got a greeting, and the greeting we read, grace and peace. Peace. John is not alone in writing these words, grace and peace. In all of Paul's letters, he includes that greeting, grace and peace. And it's not just some sort of filler to put in a letter, but this is a Christian introduction of a letter that has a powerful meaning and significance. Let me start with the word grace. This really encapsulates the essence of Christianity. God's unmerited favor toward us. We don't earn his favor, and our salvation that we enjoy is not because we have more good than bad, and God slides us into the kingdom, but it's all based on Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross, paying for our sins that we receive as a gift. It's all grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So not only do we become a Christian by God's grace, it doesn't stop there. It continues. The whole Christian life is built on grace. Did you know that? The beginning of it, the middle and the end, it's all based on God's gracious gift to us to sustain us in this life. And the word peace goes back to the Old Testament and the New, this idea of not just an absence of conflict, but a restoration, a wholeness between God and with each other. And so we are called to experience this in our Christian lives. And they were called to experience this, even though they were going through trials and persecution, they were to live out a peaceful life. Now, it's interesting The words grace and peace always appear in that order in Paul's letters and here in John. And I think it's for a reason, because... We have peace because of grace. In other words, grace comes before peace. We've experienced the grace of God in our lives. Therefore, we have peace with our maker. Amen. And because we have grace from God, now we're able to give grace to other people when they wrong us and when they offend us. And therefore, we can have peace with others. So let me ask you, do you know that grace is? in your life? Have you realized that salvation is not a matter of your good works adding up to more than your bad deeds, but it is simply a matter of a grace gift from God that you receive by faith? That's never been a reality. Today would be the day to receive this great treasurous gift that is held out to you to believe the salvation that Christ has procured on the cross and he wants you to receive today. Grace and peace. Now, so far, we've seen that this greeting is like other letters, but now we're going to see it gets a lot different, okay? Because it doesn't come from John, but it actually comes from the Trinity. So to start, the greeting comes from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is referring to God the Father and his unchanging nature, Now, it's interesting that he doesn't say who was and who is and who is to come. That would have been sort of a natural progression of things, right, from past to the future. He does this actually in other places, or at least one other place in the book of Revelation. But he kind of reverses the order here to stress God who is. Why does he do that? Well, I don't know for sure, but I think a very good guess is the fact that Not only is God who He is in a pristine past or in a future in heaven, but He is God now in the midst of your trials and tribulations. He hasn't changed one bit. God is. He has not changed. He is still fully God. The next part of the greeting comes from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Now here, John is speaking about the Holy Spirit. Say, say, how do you know that? Well, the whole greeting is about the trinity or from the trinity so we saw god the father christ appears next so i think this is referring to the holy spirit and when we keep in mind the symbolism of the book of revelation it makes even better sense so i don't think he's saying that the holy spirit is made up of seven spirits but the number seven symbolizes fullness and perfection so the holy spirit is the perfection of spirit because he is god himself as well Then we come to the final part of the greeting. It says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. So three titles are given to Jesus because he is just the centerpiece of redemption. He is the faithful witness. He always tells the truth. You know, we talk a lot in our culture about how we can't even understand and and know the truth anymore because there's so much lies and deceptions out there, right? Right? Jesus always tells the truth, always tells the truth. In total contrast to the devil, who is a liar and an evil deceiver, right? And we're going to see in the book of Revelation how that's a big part of Satan's strategy is to counterfeit the work of person of God. Jesus, though, it said in John eight thirty seven, he says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Jesus tells the truth even to the point of death. When he stood before uh, the Jewish religious leaders and they asked him who he was and are you the Christ, he could have tried to fudge and hedge his bets, but he was explicit in telling the truth, he is. Cost him his life. He is also the firstborn of the dead. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1.18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What does that mean to say he's the firstborn of the dead? Well, it doesn't mean that he somehow came into existence, that he was once a, a creature and, you know, God made him and so forth like the Jehovah's Witnesses falsely teach. No, the word firstborn referred to an heir. The firstborn would receive the preeminence and so forth. And so when it says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, he is the first one who rose again to never live in or to never die. Death has been conquered by him. He is the heir of a new creation, right, of eternal life. That is Jesus. He defeated death. Lastly, he's the ruler of the kings on earth. You know, at this time, Rome was the superpower. It may have been the greatest kingdom that ever lived on this earth. It was an incredible, long-lasting empire and dynasty, and they would have been surrounded by its power, but its power was nothing compared to Jesus. It says later in Revelation that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His reign will last forever. And not only that, but his reign operates by a totally different standard than the world's. His standard is love read a great quote this week from the famous general and leader himself, Napoleon Bonaparte. He said this toward the end of his life. It's fascinating. He was in exile after he had been defeated, and you know he had all this long reign of power and glory and so forth. And I don't know his spiritual condition, but these were fascinating words that Napoleon said toward the end of his life. He said, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empires upon love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. So Jesus found that his kingdom, not upon force, which is all the ways of man, but on love. And his kingdom will never last, but, or never fail. This is, and this is going to lead to the next part. and the rest of verse 5, and then in verse 6, John is going to move from a Trinitarian greeting to this incredible word of praise, focusing on Christ. If you're with me, read verses 5 and 6. It says, To him who loves us, speaking of Christ, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen." Amen. So John praises Jesus for his love for us. Friends, never forget that. Jesus loves us. And not just in the past tense, but he loves us to the present moment and will love us forever. The greatest way, though, that we see that love is the cross of Christ when he was willing, as it says there, by that cross, free us from our sins. Ephesians 1 7 says, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You say, How does the, how does the cross free us from our sins? Well, you know, there is an enslaving power of sin. That just dominates us. It hardens our hearts. It, it stirs our natural selfishness to become even more selfish. It makes us callous to the people around us. It makes us start excusing sin in our lives. I, I've given this illustration before, but I still remember as a, as a middle school kid cheating on a math exam and, and coming home and telling... My mom about it, and I was so sad. That was the first time I really ever remember cheating, but my heart just got hardened to it, and it started to become a pattern of my life because, you know what, I didn't see the real problem with it. I was excusing sin, and sin is like that, isn't it? It You never just bite off a little bit of sin, do you? It always just grows and starts weaving in our hearts, and it's like a spider and a web, you know, where a bug gets there, and it just starts getting all wrapped up in it, and sin enslaves us and the sad part is is a lot of times it enslaves us and we don't even know it but i praise god that he freed me i still have sin in my life but the power is broken and for those who know christ you rejoice that he has freed you from the power of sin he also frees us from the judgment of god because of our sin we will face the wrath of god on judgment day We all will stand before him. How encouraging is it to know that the king of this universe and the judge of all creation wipes your slate completely clean. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. You will not face judgment. Makes me think of a contrast that I've heard before with the first presidential pardon. That you ever heard of this before? In 1830, there was a guy named George Wilson. He was convicted of obstructing delivery of the mail, robbery of the mail, and endangering the life of mail carriers. Apparently, they took mail delivery a lot more seriously back then than we do today. So anyway, this man was on death row. His accomplice was executed, but Wilson was pardoned by Andrew Jackson, because he had some acquaintances who lobbied on his behalf, but interestingly, Wilson refused the pardon. Now, sometimes a story kind of gets left there that just like, okay, he was pardoned and he didn't want to accept it, and so he was executed. And why? What on earth would he do that? Well, there was more to the pardon. He was still supposed to serve twenty more years, and so he didn't want to do it, and therefore he was executed. President Jackson did pardon him, but he was far from a complete pardon, right? In contrast, God pardons us completely. There's no bill you have to pay. There's no more time you have to serve. It is a complete wiping away of all of your sin. And not only that, but he gives you the righteousness of Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. And that is what took place with Christ. And that is why we praise him. And we have just adoration in our hearts. And there's even more. John adds that Jesus made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. I said last time, there's a whole lot of the Old Testament as a foundation for the book of Revelation. Here's a great case. You see, in the, New, in the Old Testament, God chose Israel to be a kingdom of priests. He wanted the entire nation to be his mediators, his representatives to the world, so that the world would look at Israel and think, wow, God has done something remarkable in this country. We want to know about your God. But we know that because of their constant rebellion and idolatry, God took away that priesthood that was meant for the entire nation and gave it just to the tribe of Levi. And even within that tribe, it was just the priest of Aaron who actually served as priest to God. But did you get the memo that something's changed? And the New covenant? the church is the, enti- the entire church is now a kingdom of priests all of us. And notice it says there, he made us a kingdom of priests. Past tense. We are a kingdom because we are identified with Christ who now reigns over all of the world. We are identified with him so we reign with him and we're a kingdom of priests. This is a very important truth that's mentioned in the New Testament, in the Book of Romans, in the Book of Hebrews, several times more in Revelation. First Peter two nine says, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light." You say, well, "What does that mean?" To say practically, you know, we're a kingdom of priests. Well, I think to start breaking this down for us, applying this in our lives, we need to embrace our identity. This is who we are. We are an eternal, international, redeemed people of God whom God wants to use to mediate himself to the world so that the world enters the kingdom of God. That's our identity. That's who we are. We've been freed from the power of sin. We worship our triune creator, and we are a kingdom of priests, an eternal, universal, redeemed body of people that God wants to use to mediate his presence and his blessings to a world so that they might enter the kingdom of God. That's our identity. Have you embraced that as your identity? That is what God wants to wrap our hearts and minds around. That is what matters, or at least it should matter, more than our identity with our job, our ethnicity, our nationality, our favorite sports teams, or whatever it might be. And then God wants us to live out that identity as a kingdom of priests. say, how so? Well, we're supposed to mediate between God and the world, right? And so we're supposed to mediate the world to God. I think we do that by praying. We're to pray for the world. We're to pray for individuals in our lives, friends, family members, acquaintances, that they would know this great triune God. Are you doing that? On a regular basis, praying for people that God would open their hearts and minds to enter the kingdom. And so we're also supposed to mediate God to the world. We need to live a life that's different than the world, right? Not because there's anything special about us. We just saw we're enslaved to sin until God frees us. But once we have been freed, He wants us to be salt and light. And He also wants us to display that with meeting people's needs and taking care of them, to be open-hearted, open-handed, and generous. And also to declare the good news about a kingdom that they can enter into. I think we need to really look hard for doors to show the love of Christ in practical ways. To remember that, that being part of the kingdom of God isn't just gathering to church on Sunday morning. That's part of it. We're, the, we're supposed to be the gathered church and the scattered church. We gathered here to, to build each other up and to strengthen one another. But then we go scatter, right? Right? Because God has a purpose and a plan wherever you are, your house, your neighborhood, your, your workplace, your school. God wants you to be a kingdom of priests. And we're to constantly looking for ways that he wants to use all of us, not just the pastor or the leaders, but each and every person to be a kingdom of priests. And so if there's somebody who's struggling, you know, going through a crisis, you can be there to give them a phone call, a note of encouragement. Or, hey, here's a book, here's a resource that's helped me to be a, a, a parent or a spouse that God has helped me in my life, or somebody's going through a health crisis, to be the one to make that call, to visit them in the hospital, to start a Bible study at, at, at school or at work or whatever, to be kingdoms of priests to those around us. We gather, and then we scatter. And then we're a kingdom of priests wherever God places us. Amen? What a remarkable privilege that he gives us to be his hands and feet, doing it all for the glory of God. So for this, Jesus deserves unending praise, as we just read. He loved us, he freed us from sin, and he made us a kingdom of priests. Now don't look outside, I'm about to wrap up here pretty soon. Our passage culminates by speaking about the return of Jesus, where he culminates his kingdom in verse 7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. So here again, Jesus quotes an Old Testament reference from Zechariah 12.10 that spoke about judgment falling on the tribes of Israel. Jesus comes along in in Matthew 24.30 and applies this passage to the whole world when He returns. He says there, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and then they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. So when Jesus returns, his people will rejoice, but now he's expanded that sense of judgment, not just to the people of Israel, but to all the world, right? Not just those who crucified him, not just to the Romans, but the entire world, because there will be a sense of great celebration that Jesus has returned, but there will also be a great sense of sorrow as people realize they have missed out and that judgment has now come. As, Jesus, as, as Adam said earlier, every knee will bow when Jesus returns, either out of worship and celebration, recognizing he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, uh, or out of great trepidation because he has now become your judge. Are you ready for his coming? Matthew 22, Jesus tells a, a, a parable about a king who throws a grand feast, a grand banquet, a wedding banquet. It would have been enormous. It would have been awesome. And he tells his servants, go tell everybody, you're invited. Come to the banquet of the king. And they go out. And some of the people like, you know, chase him around and even kill him. But then some of the people said, no, we don't want to go. We're, we got things going on. We're busy. They don't want to enter the kingdom because they have things going on in their life. And in my experience, that's common in our culture. Not so much that people want to attack you or antagonize you or debate you. They're just busy with life and things are going on. And, and sort of they, they've bought an end this lie that, you know, life, I just jump on. And it's like those, you know, the walking sidewalks at the airport, right? You just get on it. and It just takes you. And that's what life is like for a lot of people. They just get on it. And life is busy. And there's always something going on. There's a new thing to be distracted by. And they think, well, one day I'll get to that, right? maybe later in life, or when things slow down, and they're on this just moving sidewalk, and they think it's just going to go and go and go and go and forever. And there's always a point where they can stop and say, now I want to be ready for Christ and his return. But the Bible says that we won't be ready if we think that way. That one day the sidewalk will stop because God is going to stop it. And we need to be ready when that day comes. He's inviting you to a great feast. There is nothing on this earth to compare to what God has in store for those who believe in Him. So if you're falling for the passing, temporal, frivolous things of this life and thinking, I'll always have another time, stop today and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Make sure you're going to that grand feast. Believe in Christ passage closes with verse 8. God the Father speaks, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he is the Alpha and the Omega. You say, what does that mean? Well, that was the the letter, uh, the first letters of the Greek alphabet. The New Testament was written in Greek. And so there's your Alpha. There's the upper and lower case. Then you see the Omega. So God is the beginning and the end of the world. He's the middle. He's everything. He's, he was in control in 2020. He's in control of 2021. And he not only is in control, but he's dry driving it to a great end and purpose. And and this is amazing because in past and present, people look around the world and they think there's no purpose. There's no goal to this world. And the Bible screams, absolutely not. There is a goal and a purpose. In the ancient days, the Greeks would have thought this world was just cyclical. It's just in this never ending cycle of beginning and end, beginning and end. And they're just caught in this trap. And even today, people will look around and think, well, this universe has just always existed and always was and so forth. The famous atheist, uh, Carl Sagan said The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. So for him, basically the universe is God. It's always existed and it always will be. But we know that there is a creator, right, who started this whole universe and one day will bring it to completion. The Bible declares that God made it all. He sustains it all. He's going to complete it all because he is the Alpha and the Omega. What a great God we serve. Amen? Amen. Amen.